Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. I'm Jeffrey Hayes. On the show today, we're talking about the upcoming SRS, SREI Surgical Bootcamp. Joining me to discuss this is Dr. John Petroza, who is Division Chief of Reproductive Medicine and IVF and Director of MGH Integrated Fibroid Program at Massachusetts General Hospital. He's on faculty at Harvard Medical School and is also the president for the Society of Reproductive Surgeons. Dr. Petroza, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So I was looking over some notes here too, and, and I saw that the, this is the sixth year of this surgical boot camp. Uh, tell our listeners a little bit about how this got started. Oh, I got a great story about how, how this got started. <clears throat> I, you know, I, I, I wasn't even part of the Society for Reproductive Surgeons yet. I was sort of a newbie, sort of wanting to get involved with SRS. And I'd reached out to some colleagues and they said, hey, John, you know, there's this talk about getting this boot camp together and there's going to be a a talk, a discussion between the CEO for ASRM, who was Richard Reindoller at the time, and Sina Najat, who was spearheading this project for SRS, along with SREI, who was going to co-host or co-sponsor this project. You know, SRS, of course, is the surgical affiliate for ASRM, and SREI is the educational and fellowship aspect of, of ASRM. So it was a, a perfect opportunity, um, and somehow, somehow I got connected to the call, right? <laughs> and I, I'm, I am fairly sure the people were surprised that what is John Petrosa doing on this call? I was surprised. I can, I, I can assure you they were surprised. But anyway, there was a good discussion. Um, you know, there was talk about cost and where was this going to be? And, you know, could we get this up and running in a short period of time? Because the window of time to get this implemented, the first one, was, was going to be tight. And I can tell you that, you know, Richard Reindoller was very receptive and very eager about doing this. SREI at the time was very interested in, in doing this. I think Jared Robbins was the president at the time. And and Sina Jat you know, who's passionate about this, really convinced him. You know, as I tell others, he did a master's class for me on how to negotiate, how to get things done and convince people that this is going to be a success. And so the first SRS bootcamp was was actually held um, in Tampa at this center, the simulation center um, called CAMEL. Um, and people came from all over. I think at that time we had either 35 or 40 fellows who signed up to participate. Um, and it was great. I mean, it, it was a little bit of a learning experience for us, um, but it was a great opportunity to start to develop faculty, start to work on the curriculum, see what the fellows liked. And here we are, you know, getting ready for our sixth one. And I can tell you that each year the program has gotten better and better and better. And, and, and the fellows... You know, who, if they were a little bit apprehensive starting off early, now they want to come to this. This is something they look forward to. Um, it's a two, two and a half day, very intense program where we get fellows. We currently do it at the Mighty Center, which is part of Methodist Hospital in Houston. Um, it's a fabulous center. We, we bring in cadavers so we can do some some cadaver work. We can do a lot of retroperitoneal work, working in areas that you really can't do with other type of simulators. 
Um, we do hysteroscopic training. We do laparoscopic suturing training. We do tissue extraction training. We do fibroid training. We do microsurgical training. There's nothing that we leave untouched. And I know that the fellows come out of this going, wow. Um, and I can tell you that the folks at these simulation centers have said, this is the best program that they see bar none compared to other surgical societies who try to do these type of, of boot camps. So we're very proud of the fact that we're getting into our sixth year and really getting better and better and better. Um, so, so yeah, so, you know, we're going to have this again at the mighty center um, in January of 2022. This year was a little bit of an interesting year for us with COVID uh, because we had to do this virtual. And so, when we got the word that we weren't able to meet in person in Houston, um, the board at SRS, um, and this past year, the person who was running the boot camp was Kat Wong, who's my vice president. Um, and we said, can we do this virtually? <laughs> you know, how do, how do you bring a surgical hands-on course and do this virtually? And so we had some good friends and some places who knew how to think outside the box with us. And we coordinated with a company that we had worked with before called Gynesim. And Gynesim has started to do some virtual surgical hands-on training already. We, I actually went to one of their courses to see how it would work out. And we said, I think we can do this. So for 2021, we had one day of a virtual sort of didactic course we had 40 plus fellows participate. They heard all the lectures that we typically give during the course. And then the next day we had 10 fellows who paid a little extra money to participate. We sent them a kit with laparoscopic training tools, camera systems, video monitors, and tissue models to work on. Um, and it was a full day of walking these fellows through the surgical skills we wanted them to learn and it was a success by all measures and so this is important for us because as we start to think about srs and what our ultimate goals are down the road being able to train virtually if we need to as well as in person is going to be helpful you can think about ways that we want to work with colleagues in other countries could we do this virtually and this is starting to set the foundation for some of those long-term plans that we have you know, we're sitting here and we're, we're talking about the actual educational need uh, uh, for this surgical uh, boot camp. Can you touch briefly on uh, what are what are the gaps in training that that help to to feed this? You know, and and, and talk a bit of a little bit how the boot camp helps fills that that gap or those gaps. Yeah, you know, the, the gap in training for reproductive surgery kind of mirrors a little bit of what's happening about the educational training in reproductive endocrinology in general. And what I mean by that is, if you go to most OBGYN residencies, um, the amount of exposure that residents get with reproductive endocrinology is getting less and less and less for various reasons. Many of them are good reasons. You know, there's just so much to learn. Um, you know, how do you rotate through all the different sub- um, and super subspecialties within the area of obstetrics and gynecology. So um, some of it makes sense. Um, a lot of REI practices uh, 
have moved their primary facilities outside the major academic centers, outside the major academic campuses. So it's a little bit harder for residents to get there. And so there's been a shift in, in that training and exposure. But for those that do go into an REI fellowship, there are some programs that are very surgically heavy, meaning they get a lot of opportunities to operate, either with a dedicated reproductive surgeon, sometimes it's both a reproductive surgeon and a minimally invasive GYN surgeon, sometimes it's an oncologist who's also working with them, sometimes it's just a GYN who happens to do a lot of surgery. But not every fellowship is the same. Every fellowship has its own particular strength and niche that they are, are, are more comfortable with. And so because of that variability in surgical training, we wanted to create exposure. We wanted to say, listen, come to our boot camp. You know, we're not expecting to train you and have you be an expert after two days of being at this boot camp, but we want to give you some exposure. And if you don't do a lot of training, um, you're going to walk away from the boot camp feeling a little bit more comfortable and knowing how to do certain things, at least the basic skills. And hopefully they can go back and with whomever they're operating with at their fellowship, hopefully have them have a little bit more of a discussion to say, these are the things that I saw. These are the things that some of my colleagues, other fellows are doing at some of these busier practices. Can we start to incorporate that into my training if, if they want to do this? And, you know, we're not we're not blind to the fact that not every REI fellow wants to do surgery. I suspect most don't, but for those that do, we want to create that niche and opportunity. We want them to know that, Hey, there is an opportunity for you to get more training. There is an opportunity for you to develop a niche outside and what outside your fellowship. And once you get into the real world, what, what then are, are some of the more prevalent pathologies or defects that these practicing REIs uh, are going to see in clinical practice that, 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 that may adversely affect fertility if not corrected surgically? What, what's the most that you're seeing that, you're tell, that you can inform them about? Well, you know, you know for, for me, you know, I, I, you know, I've been operating for, for quite a while. It's part of the reason I went into reproductive endocrinology was really for the, for the surgical care. Um, you know, the IVF was just, was just a bonus to me. Um, and, and over the years, you know, when I first got out of fellowship, I had focused primarily on endometriosis. That was my, my thesis when I was a fellow. When I first got out, I wanted to have a niche that I could say, listen, send surgery patients to me. So Pelvic pain was my niche. And so I saw a lot of pelvic adhesions in women of reproductive age, women who had endometriosis, women who had malarian anomalies, where maybe things were obstructed and they were having pain because of that obstruction. And then as the years developed, I started to incorporate things like fibroids um, and uterine septums and, 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 and other types of things that didn't necessarily cause pain in women. And so now I direct the MGH Integrated Fibroid Program because I wanted that to be not only my surgical niche, but also a little bit of my research niche moving forward. So things kind of develop and twist throughout throughout the years, and, that, and that's to be expected for anybody. But there is a lot of overlap with what reproductive surgeons do with what with what other surgeons do. There's no question about it. And I think that goes that holds true for a lot of the GYN surgical subspecialties. You know, we know that our mixed colleagues and our GYN colleagues are going to deal with fibroids. They're going to deal with adhesions. They're going to deal with endometriosis. 
maybe not as much to malarian anomalies. Um, I think what we do in the pathologies that I think are more meaningful to us are things that might have an impact on that woman's reproductive life, right? So, um, you know, people often say, what is the difference between a MIGS and a reproductive surgeon? And I often say reproductive surgeon is going is to deal with someone and try to enhance their ability to conceive normally if possible, but if not normally, enhance their ability to have a more successful outcome with assisted reproductive technologies. That's always our mindset. So when we go into a surgery, and let's say I'm taking out fibroids, I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to take out fibroids. I'm going to make sure I get all these fibroids out because I also don't want that woman coming back to have surgery again. Um, I'm also going to be looking at her ovaries, making sure that they're in the correct placement for any future IVF egg retrieval she might have. Um, so there's a lot of things going through my mind. Same thing if a woman has really bad endometriosis. I'm going to sit there. I'm going to excise as much as I can. I also know that if the ovaries are adhered someplace outside the pelvis, that my goal is to get them closer down into the pelvis so that whoever does her IVF has a much better chance of, of retrieving eggs. If I'm dealing with someone who has really bad scar tissue and her tubes are swollen, you know, I have to make a decision. Can I open them up? Will these be, will these be functional tubes? Will this woman ever have a chance to do IVF? Um, and if that's the, you know, if she can't down the road, then I'm going to make every attempt to try to correct those tubes and make them functional. If this is a woman who's going to go through IVF, then I know that maybe I need to take out that tube in order to improve her outcomes with IVF down the road. So, you know, it, we, we get our skills and our knowledge as a reproductive endocrinologist, and we bring it into the surgical arena. And we're thinking constantly about both things. So we come into the surgeries with a different mindset. And I think that is the difference between a reproductive surgeon, especially a reproductive surgeon who is REI trained versus, let's say, a MIG surgeon or a GYN surgeon who just happens to do a lot of surgeries in women of reproductive age. And I know, you know, I have several great friends, great colleagues from minimally invasive GYN surgeons who do a lot of reproductive surgery, but they'll often come to me and say, hey, John, I got this patient that I'm going to operate on and this and this and this, and what do you think? And I'll say, well, how are you going to approach it? Well, I'm going to do it this way. Well, did you think about this? No, I didn't think about that. Well, I, you know, where's that coming from? I said, it's because you're not an REI. This is what I'm thinking. And, you know, that, that's the difference. You know, we all have a role in the surgical field. And, and, and I think the other thing, as far as reproductive surgery goes, is we're not all just minimally invasive. You know, there's a big trend toward doing things minimally invasive. A lot of my fibroid surgeries, for example, can't be done minimally invasively. It has to be done through a more classical big incision in order to get the best outcome that I need for that patient. Is that is that on a case by case basis? Because I want to ask you, um, you know, these talking about the actual surgical procedure. You know, we uh, laparoscopy is 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 pretty widespread in use and is is a minimally uh, minimally invasive uh, uh, procedures. Uh, you're saying then that in your experience, you know, with especially with fibroids, that you have to go in and do more, you know basically cut someone open, and, you know, uh, uh, get in there. Do you find that that's more, more the case, more of the time, less of the time? Um, you know, I, I, 
I always approach my patients who need surgery with the hope that I can do it minimally invasively. That's always my goal, right? It's, it's a better outcome for the patients as far as recovery time. Um, you know, for me, it, it, it's, you know, I, 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 I love my patients. I don't necessarily like to round on them all the time, especially if it's a weekend. Um, so, you know, if I can do something minimally invasively and send them home the same day, it's a win-win for everybody. Um, but to me, there's such a push toward doing things minimally invasive. It, it's like it's either do it or you, you're, people are willing to sacrifice a lesser outcome. And that is perplexing to me. You know, for fibroids, for example, I spend a lot of time preoperatively trying to determine what is the best surgical approach. And if I can't get out the fibroids laparoscopically, I'm going to do it through an open procedure because my patient not only wants to have a normal uterus or at least the most normal uterus I can give her to improve her outcomes at that immediate time as she tries to conceive. She also doesn't want to come back and see me in five or six years with a regrowth of fibroids that I just didn't remove. And, you know, and for fibroids, especially in women who, um, who have a, a genetic predisposition, you know, especially women who, who are of African-American descent, we know their fibroids come back and they come back quickly. Um, it doesn't make any sense sometimes to do things always laparoscopically. We do a lot of surgeries for malarian anomalies that aren't necessarily minimally invasive. We can't, you know, sometimes it just isn't amenable to, to the approach and technique. Um, so we do a lot of stuff through open incisions. We do a lot of microsurgery. Um, you know, a big push, for example, to do a lot of tubal anastomosis laparoscopically. But a lot of my friends who do a lot of tubal anastomosis do it through a small little mini lap incision using their surgical loops or an operating microscope and do it the way that it's been done for decades. Um, and it works well. Um, so what it, about... If, if I may, what what about robotic surgery? Where 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 what's the percentage? Not the percentage, but what you know? How often is, do you think that robotic surgery is necessary? Yeah, that that's a great question, and and um, I think robotic surgery is a great supplement to those who do laparoscopic surgery. And, and I think what you know what robotic surgery did is it brought folks who weren't comfortable doing laparoscopic surgery back into the surgical arena to do cases that they probably would have done open. You know, that patient who has two or three fibroids that maybe a skilled laparoscopist could do laparoscopically, but maybe a general gynecologist or an REI who didn't do a lot of laparoscopic surgery would have done through an open procedure. So now it allows them another tool to use to try to treat that patient. Um, it's great for certain procedures. You know, my first robotic case was a tubal anastomosis because I just didn't feel comfortable that I was getting the same outcomes doing it with regular traditional laparoscopy. You know, the, the 3D visualization that I needed working with very fine sutures is very difficult to do with straight stick laparoscopy, but I could do it with the robotics. Um, so it gave me another tool to use. So there's clearly a role for robotic surgery, um, but I think for most people who operate laparoscopically, whether it's traditional or robotic, we always want to, to teach our fellows the basic skills. Not everybody's going to have a robot in their institution, right? So you have to know the basic skills for laparoscopy. 
I'm speaking today with Dr. John Petroza. We're talking about the SRS, SREI Surgical Boot Camp, and we will be providing links to more info about this in our show notes. So please, please uh, check those out. Uh, we're, we're running out of time, Dr. Petroza. So I got one more question for you. Um, the boot camp's in its sixth year, as we were discussing, you know, earlier, and its 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 popularity continues to 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 grow. Interest in it continues uh, uh, to grow and to evolve. Um, are there any specific areas that are not currently included in the program, but that potentially uh, the boot camp program that you feel should uh, address or incorporate in, in the coming years? Um, you know, o- over the last couple of years, we've added some really interesting um, simulations. You know, we, we, we've added the microsurgical simulations, so the fellows will get to operate with surgical loops and do some tubal anastomosis. We added a fibroid tissue model that really mimics a myomectomy, the best I've ever seen. And we've talked about adding some malarian anomalies into the teaching arena as well. And I think one of the things, and, and I know we're running out of time, but one of the things I wanted to stress is, you know, as this surgical boot camp continues to grow and develop, it's really going to then start to supplement one of the things that SRS will be starting this year and fully implement in 2022, which is our SRS um, surgical track within the fellowship. So now fellows who have an interest in doing more surgery or doing surgical research will now be able to do it in designated fellowships who want to be involved in the surgical track. And I think we're going to implement the boot camp into part of that, which is great. It's, it's really going to provide a continuum of experience, simulation, um, teaching that I think will allow those that still want to do surgery an opportunity to further grow. Well, and, and this is, you know, uh, I, I wish I could had I had a little bit more time with you, and, and hopefully I can have you back, and we can we can talk a little bit more about this. Uh, I've been speaking today with Dr. John Petroza about the upcoming SRS SREI boot camp, which will be taking place January twentieth through the twenty second in two thousand and twenty two. Whew, it's a lot of twos. Uh, <laughs> for <laughs> for more info on this, please see the links in our show notes, or as always, you can contact us uh, at ASRM uh, Dr. Petroza, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and this is ASRM Today. This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, author information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. This material is copyrighted by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and may not be reproduced or used without express consent from ASRM. ASRM Today series podcasts are supported in part by the ASRM Corporate Member Council. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.